What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Let's Talk Minnesota Sports. I'm your host, Andrew Neuer, coming at you on a Wednesday afternoon, April 27th. That's the sweet sound of a McGolden. I originally cracked a drifting pale ale from an offshoot beer company, but for some reason, that can decided to explode everywhere, so I decided to go with the fallback plan with Old Trustworthy. Let me know what you're drinking in the comments section below. We have a lot to talk about, so let's talk some Minnesota sports. All right, let's begin things with the Minnesota Timberwolves. Probably not the best topic to begin with, but it's something we do need to discuss, obviously, because it's the playoffs, even though it might hurt us a little bit to talk about. So be, to get be, to, uh, to begin things, where do we be, where do we go from here? Well, game six is at home, and the time is still de- still to be determined. It's going to be based off whether or not the the Bucks and Bulls game goes to six or not. That game is going on tonight, and as I said earlier, I am recording in the afternoon, so we won't know the times. Probably by the time this comes out tomorrow, we'll know the time of that game. But the last time we did talk on the podcast, it was a the series was tied. No, not tied. The series was two one in favor of the Grizzlies. Ironically, that was right after Game Three, where they blew a double digit lead. And now that we're talking again, the last time the Wolves played, they blew another double digit lead in the fourth. ESPN Stats and Info tweeted this out earlier. The Grizzlies are first are the first team in NBA history to have multiple wins in a single playoff series in which they trailed it by double digits entering the fourth quarter. Of course it has to become from the it has of course it has to come from the Wolves. It would it would be it's so fitting that it is. Game three was an embarrassment, and Minnesota has made it a point to give Cat the ball. On John Krasinski's recent pod, he didn't fully say that this is what happened, but he kind of danced around the idea and said that Carl Anthony Towns asked his teammate to give him the ball. And if you go back and watch those that game, he was asking for the ball. The Bulls just didn't do a good enough job giving him the rock. Minnesota's best chance at winning the game is if Carl Anthony Towns is scoring. And since that game, since he's asked for the ball, we've seen a different Carl Anthony Towns. And in game four, Jordan McLaughlin deserves a lot of credit for that game, and he could be very well the MVP. But that game is not won without Carl Anthony Towns. He made shot after shot and made big play after big play. In game four, he had 33 points on 8 of 17 from the field, 3 of 5 from 3, and he went 14 to 17 from the line. He also tallied 14 rebounds, 3 assists, and had 1 blocked. Game 5, well, Minnesota should have done a lot better of job giving him the ball late in game. It just didn't happen. The execution late in the quarters just was not it. And you can still see that there's a lot of inexperience and youth going on with this roster. It's it's just frustrating because D'Angelo Russell went 0 for 1 down the stretch. And the one shot that he took was a really poor quality shot and Memphis knows that D'Angelo Russell wants to shoot the ball there with that much time and sure granted at the moment when I saw him dribbling between his legs and taking the shot I was like okay that's the guy you want taking the thing but if you go back on Twitter and you look at other people's discussing it they have a point where Minnesota should have called a timeout there 
and maybe drawn up a different play because Memphis knew D'Angelo Russell wants to take it. And they didn't get a quality look. Maybe if they diverted it to show that maybe D'Angelo Russell was going to take the shot, but then he passed out to the corner for Anthony Edwards at the three or Carl Anthony Towns down low or Jared or a backdoor cut by Jared Vanderbilt. There are just so many options on this Wolves team that Minnesota just gave Memphis what they wanted. They wanted D'Angelo Russell to take that shot, and it was not a good look. In Game 5, though, Carlton Towns finished with 28 points and 7 of 15 from the field. He won 5 of 7 from 3, and he was 9 for 9 from the free throw line. He also had 12 rebounds, 1 assist, 3 steals, and 2 blocks. Offensive boards killed the Wolves that game, and sure, you could look at Carlton Towns and say, well, he's the center on that on that on the floor he should be the one getting the ball and that is true like Carlton Towns could have played better but in my opinion he was the best player on the floor Torian Prince was a very underrated aspect of that game calming the team down I think it was about with five or six minutes left he had the ball in his hands and he just told the Wolves like hey slow down and right after that he went down drew a foul and he started pulling it at his head Minnesota just needs to calm down and not feel so rushed. They're just too inexperienced. And, Tor- and having Torian Prince, a guy like that who's been in these situations before, you have to lean on those kind of players. It's almost laughable. I don't know if that's the word I want to use, but Torian Prince should be on the floor a lot more than he has been this series because. We see, we saw what he did down the stretch of the season. He was one of the key characteristics off the bench. He was so important to what the Wolves did. And we saw that in Game 5. Getting him the ball more and having him on the floor is going to be important. Just like it is having Jordan McLaughlin in those situations. Patrick Beverly too. I don't really have much to say about him in this game. Other than, obviously, he's the engine that gets the Wolves going. His the way he plays, the way he talks. But there is also the other side of the coin where you can say, like, he's just fueling Memphis, where he did the too small to John, and that's where Memphis went on a run. And sure, Pat Bev wasn't guarding him on most of those shots, but you're just giving them fire. Just giving, or he does those stupid technicals, and you're just getting the crowd going. He fouled out in game five, but... It's hard to be too hard on him just in the sense of he is the reason that the Wolves defense has turned around. But the keys to game four and the reason Minnesota won is they got out in front right away and they didn't give up the lead. They stopped John Morant and it was all, and it was only really Desmond Bain who had himself a game. By making everything difficult for John Morant to get downhill, you're just he's gonna eventually get hurt, and we're seeing some of the ramifications of him playing this style of ball where he's constantly driving to the the rim, falling on the ground. He's not 100% healthy, and before this playoff series, he wasn't healthy at all. He missed a good chunk of the last couple weeks of the season. If Minnesota continues to make everything difficult for him, and obviously not to injure the player, but make it difficult, make, make him intimidated to go to the rim. If he's intimidated to go to the rim... John Morant's not going to hurt you. Sure, in Game 5, he hit that 3 to give the Memphis Grizzlies the 107-106 lead, but I think we can all live with the fact that John Morant shooting threes over driving into the rim. 
That's just his game. The other thing that Minnesota did well is they, we just saw a different team where Memphis would start to punch back and Minnesota just said, hey, we're not giving up this lead this time. We saw a completely different team. But in game five, that like completely went away and you can just see the inexperience. Maybe it was the fact that they're on the road and that the offensive crowd, I mean the home crowd, sorry, played a huge role in what Memphis wanted to do. But game five, offensive rebounding was brutal and there was a lot of second chance points. In that game, the Grizzlies had 12 more offensive rebounds. And Memphis, they're, they're number one in the NBA in offensive rebounding. And to give them that many opportunities was almost the game ceiling. Like, obviously, I'm going to be pretty pissed about the refing in that game and where John Moran pushed Pat Bev out of bounds and there was no call, even though the ref was right in front of him. Like, come on, bro. It's just so frustrating because... Late in game, every single time John Moran drove to the rim, he got a whistle. And it's just frustrating because Memphis complains after the game and bitching about it. And it's it's like you've gotten most of the calls, I feel like, this series. And, and game five was just a perfect thing. It was like, of course, yeah, you're going to get all the calls now. But in game five, Brandon Clark was a problem for Minnesota. I do not have the stats on hand right now, but it was like 21 and like 16 or 21 and 15. Brandon Clark should not be grabbing 15, 16 rebounds or whatever it was. Sure, he's athletic. Sure, he's big. But Jared Vanderbilt and Carl Anthony Towns are good rebounders. And then, of course, you have game five where that last play and and gave up the coverage. I mean, it's just a 20-year-old mistake. He admitted after the game that he shouldn't have gone for the steal. It's just Minnesota was never winning a ring this year. And it sucks to go through these growing pains, but it'll pay off in the future. That's my belief. Anthony Edwards making this mistake now. There's a very slim chance that he makes that same decision again next game or next year if they're in the playoffs. Or even when he's 24-25. These are just growing pains that you see. You Just look at Milwaukee Bucks. They, they won a championship last year. But before that, they had to go through a lot of growing pains. There's a reason inexperienced youth, te- young, youthful teams never win. It's always the veterans, and it's just you. You just see who's going to win the championship. Memphis likely is not going to win it, and that's why they say that in order to the Phoenix Suns' biggest competition out of the West is the Warriors because they've been there. It's not the Grizzlies. Youth just doesn't win championships, and as much as this sucks to go through right now, it'll all pay off in the future. But in order for Minnesota to win these next games, though, D'Angelo Russell needs to play better. And we talked about that last shot. But to go t- have 12 points and go 4 of 10 from the field, it's just... You need more out of your max player. You're paying him 30-something million a year. You're going to want more. And that's the only way, other than Car- giving Carl Anthony Towns, they're going to have to offensive rebound. D'Angelo Russell needs to show up. And, I mean, you have to limit Brandon Clark and... Keep doing what you're doing on John Morant. If you limit John Morant, you stop Brandon Clark from killing you on the glass and at the rim. I think Minnesota has a really, really good chance of winning the game. And I talked about before, you have to slow down. You have to limit the possessions. And game three, mathematically, if you just slow it down, you use most of the shot clock up. Memphis is going to have a lot. Is going to have a lot harder of a time getting their points because they're 
there's less time on the clock. There's less time for them to come back. If you keep going down, shooting a shot right away, you're giving Memphis the opportunity to come back and win the game. My prediction for game six is Minnesota wins. I think it goes to game seven. I think the crowd is going to be electric as always. Wolves are going to win game six. And dare I say Wolves in seven? I don't know, but that's to be determined. All right, on to a more fun topic. The Minnesota Twins. The first place Minnesota Twins. Last night was fun. Well, it was fun in the sense that it gave me a little more joy after watching the Timberwolves blow that game. Obviously, I was watching both, but to watch the Wolves lose and then to see Minnesota Twins get some of that mojo magic that Minnesota Timberwolves were missing, it was a lot of fun to see. But for today, I'm not going to really be discussing what's been going on these last couple weeks. Instead, we're doing an ask me anything type of thing. And I got a couple questions from you guys. This was a lot of fun to kind of go through, kind of dig into. And I'm definitely going to be doing this in the future. So I appreciate all of you guys' questions. And let's get into it. So from Josiah, you had a lot of questions, but I loved all of them. Keep sending them. First one, which prospect goes through the which prospect goes the fastest through the twin system this year? And for me, I think on this one, I want to say it's going to be Matt Cantorino, Simeon Woods Richardson, and Christian Encarnacion Strand. I think it has to be either one of those guys at double A that kind of goes either a quick pit stop at triple A and then goes to the majors right away, or it's going to be that guy in like low, high A and it's just bouncing up to double A by the end of the season. Christian Encarnacion Strand has been hitting like crazy. Simeon Woods Richardson has been pitching really well, and maybe he finds his way up to AAA, and maybe late September he finds a couple pitches in, out of the bullpen or as a starter if there's a lot of injuries. I wouldn't bet on it, but those two are going to probably make a lot of... They're going to make a huge jump. And Matt Cantorino is a guy we've been paying attention to for a while. He's got the injuries, but... I think he has a really good chance of maybe pitching in the majors this season. Next question from Josiah. Who gets promoted first, Austin Martin or Spencer Steer? I was 50-50 on this one, and it's a tough question. But I'm going to have to say that I think Austin Martin gets the call before Spencer. Only because I think... And this isn't to say that the Twins are not high on Spencer Steer. I do not know that, obviously. But... Austin Martin is a number two prospect, and Spencer Steer is a number 10. And Spencer Steer has been playing very, very well. He's hitting right now 333 this season. Um, I mean, he's just been playing really well. There's, there's no question about it. But Austin Martin, he also plays in the infield just like Spencer Steer. So I think when you look down, if you look into it, if they're going to call an infielder up to AAA, I think they're going to do Austin Martin just because they're they, – Gave up Jose Barrios for him. They want to see what he has in store for the future, whether that's at AAA or at the majors. It's hard to see him maybe going to the majors this season just because Royce Lewis is playing so well. And I think, obviously, Royce Lewis would get the call before Austin Martin, especially since Royce is at AAA. But Austin Martin, is he should have a bright future. And whether or not he gets traded or not, that's to be determined. But he plays infield, so does Spencer Steer. And I think just because of the talent level of Austin Martin. And not to say that Spencer obviously isn't talented. It's just, it just comes down to where top prospects kind of get a little more leeway over some of the other ones. And next question from you as well, who reaches the majors first Royce Lewis or Jose Miranda? 
And this one I went with Jose, I went with Royce Lewis, sorry. I just think that Lewis has been playing really well. And Jose Miranda, for as good as he was last season, and it was a lot of fun to track through the prospect reports and entering all this stuff in Excel every night and just being like, holy shit, like this guy is just raking right now. You had to be a little skeptical that it was going to be like a one-hit wonder type of thing. This season, Miranda's only hitting 236 with an on-base percentage of 278 and a slugging of 389. He also he also only has one home run and 10 RBIs. So, like, I don't know. It, it's tough because obviously we want to see Jose Miranda play. He didn't play that well in spring training either. Royce Lewis is the number one prospect in the Twins system. He was drafted a couple years ago, and I think the whole... I think there's a lot of anticipation, especially once we saw Hunter Green get up to the majors and you look at it, you're like, okay, Royce Lewis missed two years of baseball. Can he get to the majors soon? Or is he going to be plagued because he missed the whole season due to COVID and he missed the whole season because he tore his ACL. I think Minnesota just has like this whole idea that Royce Lewis might be their next option, either up the middle in center Royce Lewis just also plays a lot of different positions. And so I think you have to look at it in that sense, too, that he has this versatility. And I love Nick Gordon, too. And I'm not saying he's going to replace him or anything, because I think Nick Gordon has a role with this team. But you can also look at it in the sense of, look at what Nick Gordon's done for this team, playing this utility role, or even Luis Arise. There's a lot of value to it. And Royce Lewis has that same value, except for he's a better hitter than all those guys. Well, maybe not Luis Arise. That's literally his whole game. Backtrack. He's a better hitter than Nick Gordon. Luis Arias just, he's a gem. But Royce Lewis, he he's defensively versatile. And the Twins have valued that in the past. We saw that with Marwin Gonzalez. Jose Miranda primarily plays third base. And I think there's actually a shot he could play maybe first later this season. A lot of the third basemen play first. So I could see that happening if Sano continues to suck. But right now, I'd have to say Royce Lewis just because of his diverse, defensive versatility and be, just the fact that he's hitting 297 with two home runs. He's getting on base. He's slugging the ball. He's just playing at a really high level. He's a number one prospect in twin system. So I think you have to give it to him. Do you think Mark Contreras ever gets called up this year? This one, I was 80-20 on that he's not going to. I think there's a chance that the Twins need outfielders, and I think that would come if there's injuries or COVID. He's not just he's I like I like Mark Contreras. I have I think he's a decent ball player, but in other seasons he's split positions at between center, left, right. And I think Minnesota already kind of has that taken care of with Buck. You have Larnick, Kirilov when he's healthy, you have Max Kepler, you have Celestino who's taken that role. Luis Arise plays a little bit of outfield. Royce Lewis could as well if you, like we just talked about, if he gets called up. There's just a lot of options in the outfield right now. And even Jake Cave, I feel like Jake Cave would get the opportunity before Mark Contreras just because, let's just say, Minnesota is playing really well. They're 60 games in and they're in the first place. I think they'd rather have Jake Cave's bat or just his ability in the field because he's been there before. And it's just also tough because you'd have to make room for him on the 40 man roster. And just because you have to make room for him on the 40, I don't know who, maybe there's other injuries and they can play someone on the IL, but 
if a player's not on the 40 man roster, it does make it a lot. It makes it a lot more difficult to get a player up to the majors. So in that sense, because he's not on the 40, because of the twins have so many options in the outfield, I think it's tough to see him. He's a decent hitter. He's got some power, but obviously I hope he does someday because he's been a player I've been tracking for a while and it's been fun to see him develop over the years. All right. So next person, Elizabeth, what can we do to make sure that Buxton is available for as many games as possible? And this is a great question because obviously when Buxton's in the lineup, the twins are a hundred times better. It's not even close. I mean, just look at what he did the other night against the Sox. Hits the two-run home run after striking out three times in a row. He hits the two-run home run to give it the tie. Then he hits the walk-off home run. It was freaking incredible. And it's just, you just know that whenever he's in the lineup, something cool is going to happen every game. Whether it's a diving play, it's an incredible defensive run, like 100, 200. He just runs so fast and he covers so much ground out there. And it's just... It's a lot of fun to watch. It's just a difference when he's out there versus when Nick Gordon's out there, Celestino, and Buxton's at bats are just he's the best hitter. He's the best defender on the team. He's it's it's his team. And I think the twins have actually been doing a really good job of keeping him on the field. Yes, I know he got injured there, but that was kind of a fluke injury. Like he's just rounding the bases. If you said, Hey, Buxton, you're playing DH for the first three weeks. And he ran any round that base there. I still think that same injury happens. I don't think it's a wear and tear type of injury. It's just unfortunate. Obviously that's just what happens with them. But Minnesota's been doing a really good job of just having them play DH every couple games or having them sit, just having those planned rest days where you're not overusing him and just having trust in your other players like Nick Gordon, like Celestino. And eventually Carlos Correa will bounce back there's no way that this guy who's a mvp caliber player is gonna be hitting 200 so in that sense buxton playing dh a lot giving him rest days that's gonna be the key to keeping him healthy and the next question carlos correa is he does he have the best teeth in baseball that i do not know but i'm gonna be doing a lot of digging i'm gonna be watching every game now specifically for their teeth no, I'm just kidding. But in in serious, no, I will actually be kind of paying attention to his teeth and whether or not he has the best teeth. I like that question. Sam, why is the shift a thing? I hate the shift. I've made it very clear. I, I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. Luckily, it's going to be coming to an end in 2023. But the reason it's in place is because baseball's gotten too analytical. If a player continues to hit it from the right side of the field, they're not going to put any defenders in left. It's just that simple. But Moving forward, I'm glad it's going to be gone. I hate it. I think a lot of players will benefit from it, like Max Kepler talked about in the last pod, that 95% of his at-bats are in shift, are shifted, and it's just... I'm glad it's done. From Stephen Barrett, one pitcher and position player you'd trade, but you'd trade for by the end of the... Okay, my bad. One pitcher and position player you'd trade for by the MLB trade deadline. And the one pitcher that I would trade for is Sandy Alcantara. I'm fully on board with the uh, Frankie Montas trade, but what about Sandy Alcantara? The Marlins have a lot of pitchers, whether it's in the system or just at the majors already. He's 26 years old. He's a one-time All-Star. Last year, he went 9-15 with 3.19 ERA. This year, in four games, he's 2-0 with a 1.78 ERA. 
He's also got a 20 to 10 strikeout to walk rate. His fastball is 98 miles per hour, which is which is just incredible to think about. You're talking about a, a starting pitcher who's throwing 98 at 26 years old, who's who had an ERA of three with the Miami Marlins last year. That's tough to do, and he, he's just a really talented guy. I think that's a name that a lot of people have kind of like pushed to the side and not really thought about because I think we got so sidetracked with the idea of Luis Cast- of Castillo with the Reds and Montas and Sandy Alcantara is a great pitcher. He's young, like I said. He's also got a 90 mile per hour slider, a 92 changeup. He's just got lethal stuff, and he lethal stuff, and he'd be a huge addition to the starting rotation if the Minnesota Twins realize that they need more help there. And lastly, for the player that position player that they could trade for, I don't know if this would happen, but what about Josh Bell? Let's just say Miguel Sano isn't hitting and he continues to struggle, which is likely. I mean, I don't think he's going to keep hitting like below 100, but can you really bank on Miguel Sano bouncing back? I mean, he's a perfect candidate to... Josh Bell's a perfect candidate for the Minnesota Twins. He's a first baseman. He's still young, and he's playing really well. Also, not to mention, as of Wednesday, the Nationals are 6-13. and And they continue to play like this. They're going to be sellers. There's no way that they're going to keep Josh Bell on the roster at a guy who's 29 if you're 20, 30 games below 500. Bell's also unrestricted free agent, so in that sense, they're going to be looking to unload him probably. An unrestricted free agent is an asset, and we you saw it with Nelson Cruz. Minnesota wanted to get rid of him because he's an, he's an unrestricted free agent, and other teams are going to be covering at his bat. This season, Josh Bell is batting 345. He's got an on-base percentage of 449, and he's slugging. It says slugging 500. I don't know why I said that. I have his stats right here. Oh, he is slugging 500. I just said, and a slugging of 500. I don't know why I misread that. So my bad on that one. He's slugging 500 on base percentage of 449 and hitting 345. He also has two home runs and 13 RBIs. He's also a good infielder. He has nine airs since 2020. That would be an incredible addition to the lineup. You have him at first with Polanco at second, Correa at short, then you have Gio Urshela at third. Then you have Kirilov, Buck, Kepler, Gary Sanchez. That's just a lethal lineup. If Josh Bell, he's not going to hit 345. He's a career 263 hitter. But if he can hit 300, 280, 270 with, I don't know, 20, 25 home runs, that would be a huge addition to this Twins lineup. And if he's an unrestricted free agent, the Nationals are struggling. That's just a player that I would be calling at the trade deadline. Those were all the questions, but I really, I really enjoyed this, like I said before. And the next time I'll do it again, I hope I can get some more of those kind of, it was just a lot of fun. And I really appreciate you guys for sending those in. All right, let's end things with some Minnesota Vikings. The NFL draft will be technically when this comes out, it'll be tonight. So when this comes out, the Vikings have the number, number 12 pick tonight. And there's been talk from Paul Allen, that the Vikings are considering going to four. Who they'd target there, I don't know. Maybe they want to 
edge player. Maybe they think that Derek Stingley Jr. isn't going to fall back to them by 12. Darren Wolfson on KSTP on his Score North podcast, he talked about that Minnesota isn't looking to go 9, 10, or 11. They're not looking to move a couple picks up. If they're going to make the move, they're going to go all the way to the front of the board. I don't know if they do it, but this is also a new regime and we haven't seen. So that's kind of the fun part about all this. We don't know what this front office is going to do. In years past, we just kind of assumed that Rick Spielman will just fall back in the draft, gain more assets in that sense. And just, that's what we saw. It's probably going to be a cornerback. It's probably going to be an edge rusher. We just don't know. And that's, what's going to be really fun about this. But for this mock draft that I did on PFF, I did not do any trades. I just went straight up with the whole round one, pick 12, round two, pick 46 in a sense. But here's my seven-round mock draft. And obviously, after this is over, let me know what you think of it in the comments section below. I'll be, I'm also curious to see what you guys either have on that mock draft or what you would maybe pick over what I did. In round one, pick 12, I chose center Tyler Linderbaum. And if you don't know before, I've been very high on him. I just wrote an article about him. I talked about him in a pod a couple weeks ago. He's just an elite center. Like I said before, PFF, he was number one in the last two seasons. So really can't go wrong, especially with Garrett Bradbury not coming back probably soon. Uh, It was reported the other day by Chris Thomason of the Pioneer Press that it's likely that the Vikings don't pick up his fifth-year option, so which means his days are numbered here. In round two, pick 46, I chose edge rusher Josh Pascal, which was received an A- by PFF. Round three, pick 77, I chose cornerback Marcus Jones, which was a B+. Round five, pick 156, I chose guard Joshua. And I'm going to butcher this last name, but Azidu? Yeah, we'll say that. I'm going to go with Joshua Azidu. That received a B plus. And in round six, pick 184, I chose cornerback Joshua Williams, which for some reason that's a D plus, but I'll get more into that after. Round six, pick 191, I chose edge rusher Isaiah Thomas, which was an A. Round six, pick 192, I chose Josh Johnson, which is a wide receiver, and it got a B minus. Round seven, pick 250, I chose Brock Purdy, which was an A minus. And if you don't know, he's a quarterback out of Iowa State. Wasn't very high on Minnesota drafting any quarterbacks, but Kirk Cousins' days maybe will be coming to an end. I know he's going to be here for a little bit longer. Now He's not going to be a free agent at the end of the season, but maybe Minnesota really likes Brock Purdy and they want him to groom behind Kirk Cousins. We know you don't really need to stress a whole lot about the backup situation because Kirk Cousins is one of the most reliable backup quarterbacks in the is not he's one of the most reliable quarterbacks in the NFL. He just plays almost every game and obviously last year he missed some, but that was due to the COVID situation and all that. But maybe Brock Purdy is their guy at round seven and they don't see anything else they like. Overall, though, my grade was a B plus. I think it was pretty decent. For some reason. Joshua Williams received a D plus, which I'm not really under. I didn't really understand because sure. He didn't go to a big name school and he was, he's not going to be in the light of a lot of other, like a lot of other players that went to like Georgia or Alabama, Michigan, but they had him ranked on his, on the big board around the early one hundreds. And when I took him, 
I took him at pick 184. If you're talking about a guy who's low 100s and I'm getting him 80-something picks later, you can't give it a D plus. I mean, the, the Vikings need cornerback help. And in the situation of being at 12, I think obviously getting Linderbaum would be a home run. Maybe you trade back for him because apparently there is some talk that he was once looked at as a top 10 pick and now for some reason he's slipping in mock drafts and obviously mock drafts are never correct, but you never know. And there's always going to be a guy that was supposed to go top 10 that slips to 20 something and no one knows why. And then later we find out the reason, but if Minnesota can get Linderbaum at 12 or move back to get him, that would be a home run. If Stingley Jr. or Sauce Gardner is on the board at 12, I think you have to go with them. I think their potential is elite, and Minnesota needs cornerback help, and grabbing one of those guys at 12 would be it would be so sweet. I I just don't know what's going to happen. As I said, we just it'll be a completely new regime, and I'm really excited to see what's happening. But... The NFL draft will be tonight at 7 p.m. And as I said before, let me know who you guys want the Vikings to draft or what you think is going to happen. Like, do you think they're going to trade up? Do you think they're going to trade down? Who's your dream target at number 12? There's just a lot of different scenarios, and it's going to be a fun ride. But anyways, guys, that wraps up our sixth episode. Thank you all for listening. Cheers. Thank you.